Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Social Innovation Podcast. My name is Zaldo Stor, and I'm your host today. We're sitting with Lauren Blasco and Neil Stain. Uh, Lauren is the Principal Head of ESG at AC Ventures, and Niels is the Venture Architect Director at BCG Digital Ventures. Now, they both came together to author a report, Scaling Impact with Technology, and that looks at accelerating ESG adoption in Indonesia's digital economy and trying to create a framework for both investors and companies to look at in terms of ESG reporting in the region. Uh, Lauren and Niels, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's so great to have you guys here, and there are, I got a lot of questions about the report, but just to begin with, uh, Lauren, why don't you give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself and how you got here, and then Niels, if you could do the same, and then we can sort of start asking a few questions about the report. Sure. So um, I started my career in, in private equity and quickly made the transition to sustainability about 12 years ago. Um, I had the ability to work on some public, private, educational programs and projects focused around sustainability, waste, et cetera. And during COVID, I actually had the opportunity to work with a few funds. And I thought, what better choice than to kind of merge all of my experiences in private equity as well as in sustainability to join a VC fund in Indonesia. And I recently joined AC Ventures. AC Ventures is an early stage technology venture fund that focuses on investing in Indonesia's digital disruptors. And Niels, what about you? Yeah, so I'm with BCG Digital Ventures, as you mentioned. And so briefly, maybe before before I go into what we do here, how I landed here, prior to joining DV about five years or so ago, uh, I had a career that covered everything from corporate venture capital to a couple of very short months at an investment bank. But then I decided that life's not for me. So I actually joined consulting and didn't realize well, that life was not neither for me. But so I worked at BCG Classic for a couple of years, actually, and then uh, left the consulting business and joined early stage startups. So I worked in, an, in one early stage startup as, a, as employee number seven. And then after that, founded my own company as well. And then it was after that, the DV opportunity came by. I'd always been connected to the folks at, at DV and they were saying, hey, you know, BCG started this, um, this new venture building uh, arm and we're having the time of our life and you should come and join us. And so that was yeah, more than five years ago. And since then, I started actually originally in the Sydney office and then about three and a half years or so ago, moved to Singapore to come help open up our, our center here. And it's been a fantastic ride. I, last, I would say the last three years or so, I've been focusing more of my efforts on what we call green tech, which basically covers everything from agri-tech and climate tech specifically has, has sort of been the, the two that I've been working in, in the last three over the last three years. But, you know, uh, it also includes broader kind of like green tech categories. So um, that's been been sort of my my drive, my focus the last three years and increasingly moving forward as well. So interesting that both of you started your careers at some point in finance and then found through a path into sustainability. Something I like to ask everybody that comes on this show is, was there something that was a catalyst in your life? Was there some sort of moment that made you 
feel that you wanted to shift? I know, Lauren, I, your background is a little bit more in sustainability. You've been doing it for a little bit longer. But as I said, both of you went in the traditional banking routes, whether that was private equity or investment banking. Was there something that happened that made you think that I actually want to put my energy and effort towards sustainability and climate? Sure. I think that probably around the age that we graduated university and was in school, we were going in towards a finance path, which was just kind of a natural progression of where perhaps we, we saw that we should be. As a child, I was very passionate about sustainability. I, if I look back, I think my second grade project was all about invention. And my idea was to invent a machine that would suck waste and garbage out of the ocean. So I think I was just very passionate about sustainability as, as a child and entering into a space into private equity that was focused mostly on hospitality. I saw that sustainability was really just starting to scratch the surface more on the infrastructure side. So I just stayed the path with that until I saw that there was actually opportunities within sustainability and then quickly made the transition. It's amazing, actually, that, you know, the, the reference to sort of the childhood references, right? Um, and how, I guess, some of, the, some of these things always date back to, to one's formative years. And for me, in that aspect, actually, also, I grew up quite privileged in the sense that we, you know, having grown up in South Africa, we always had, as a family, a great passion for, for spending time in, in nature, and whether that be on the game farm, at the national parks, you know, that we were able to go to was, I guess, like ingrained in me from a very, very, very early age. So much so that, you know, when I was a young kid, when everybody asked me what I wanted to grow up, be when I would grow up, I wanted to be a game ranger, right? And so that was my, that was my passion when I was young. And so I guess fast forward a number of years, you go through sort of life and, and all its motions and things, and you come out to a point where you realize, oh, I'm sort of mid-career now. But I still have passion for, for whether that be sort of uh, the environment, our planet, sustainability. And there's an opportunity to merge what I do in my day job together with that passion, right? And that opportunity popped up about, like, like I mentioned, about three years ago. And it was just fortuitous in that manner, but it's something I've grabbed onto and uh, something I'm, you know, sort of wake up every day realizing I'm incredibly lucky to be able to do. Just to now talk a little bit about the report, it'd be great if maybe, Lauren, you could introduce the report and sort of the, the main idea and thinking behind it, or like what was the inspiration for you to put this together? Because I believe it is one, if not the first of its kind uh, for Indonesia. So when we set out to write this report, the idea was to create a framework that would guide the way for tech companies and investors who see a paradigm of ESG and impact reporting on the horizon in emerging markets. The goal was to publish the most in-depth data-driven report to date on Indonesia's tech ecosystem and digital economy. The report was titled Scaling Impact with Technology, and it uses a net impact ratio to quantify precisely how effectively a group of companies turns resources into positive impact. We can get a bit further in, in depth on that and, and the choice of the net impact ratio and the platform, et cetera, at, at some point. I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that a bit further. But um, Nils, maybe you also want to add any context basically from, from your perspective. 
Yeah, I guess for us, it was an incredible opportunity to, to partner with uh, Lauren and the team at AC Ventures on this. Fundamentally, because, you know, having a positive impact is, is core to our values at BCG. And what I do at Digital Ventures is, is sort of, you know, building new technology-enabled businesses for that purpose, to have a positive impact on the planet. Um, and so the ability to, to partner with ACV on this, on this report, but also then bring the, just the capability of BCG around the, the in-depth ports and studies and things and knowledge base that BCG already had that we could draw upon for insight into the Indonesian economy, the Indonesian consumer, the growing micro and small um, medium uh, enterprises and the, the drivers of sort of the, I guess, like digital enablement in the Indonesian economy. We could sort of tap into all of that knowledge, bring some of that into, into the report and then combine it with the, the fantastic work that Lauren and, and the team did on uh, looking specifically at ACV's portfolio uh, and analyzing the, the net impact that their portfolio specifically has. Um, and so yeah, so that's, that's why we, we got involved and, and that was sort of the contribution that we had. And it was phenomenal to, to partner and, and go through this journey together. To be quite honest, I also learned a whole bunch of new things through this. And, and Lauren referred to sort of the net impact ratio. It was something new that I learned along this journey. And, uh, and I think something she should definitely tell you more about. I ask frequently people, anybody that's in the space, you know, how do you quantify? How do you measure impact? Typically, the companies that I ask this of are ones that are the impact is built in the company or like the, for example, the company is the reason is to have a positive impact. Whereas with the companies that were in your list that AC Ventures has invested in, you were just applying a methodology to a, a business and then seeing how that fared. So I'd love to know more about how you came to those scores, what the ratios actually mean and look like, because I did see that, for each category, there was both a positive and a negative score. And I guess you kind of took the accumulation of both to establish the score. And you said across the portfolio, I think you're positive 37%, which is great. But I'd be very curious to understand what that means, how you looked at these companies and how you came to that score. So we partnered with a company called the Upright Project out of Finland so their platform creates the net impact assessments at AC Ventures. And I think as a sustainability professional in general, we really value third-party platforms because it really gives you a lot more transparency. The Upright Project is a platform based off of products and services, and it also gives a benchmark to other indexes or companies in the same space. So as you mentioned earlier, AC Ventures and its portfolio delivered a 37% positive um, net impact ratio. So to give you an idea, like another benchmark within the space would be kind of the NASDAQ small cap index, which is 29%, or the S&P 500, which is 2%. Working with a platform that values the impact based off of products and services kind of allows you to do any type of business because you're always going to be comparing the same the same things. Whatever product and services your business offers, it then backtracks into the impact that those products and services have, whether that be positive or negative. As you mentioned earlier, you could see kind of the positive and negatives on the report because it gives you both the positive and the negative, and then it gives you the average of the overall based on your products and services. Is there any company that came up 
as a surprise, like anything that you didn't expect to come out being much more positive or maybe even much more negative than you expected? Are, are companies that are more financial platforms or around fintech or SMEs, um, they came out much more positive than I was expecting. I think the reason for that is that their core business doesn't really have much of an environmental footprint, but then their you know knowledge distribution and their job creation and all of the different social impacts are actually very, very high. So for example, Coinworks is, is one of our companies came out very, very high. Um, so I think when you work with a system like this or do any type of baselines across the portfolio, you always get surprises. Um, in our case, we had a lot of positive surprises. So all of our companies scored very well. Again, even just looking at some of our agritech companies. So for also, for example, Eden Farms is a agritech farming platform, and they also scored extremely high given the nature of their farming practices, because they do really value ESG into their overall strategy. So introducing things that they can reduce their overall carbon footprint, like having refrigeration facilities in their distribution centers versus doing daily logistics actually helps them bring down their carbon footprint and less reliant on petrol. There's things that come up that I guess when you just look at a business from the outside in without getting really deep into the products and services that the business offers. Yeah, I, I think it, you always get surprises. And fortunately for us, we, we had a lot of very positive um, surprises with our portfolio. And there were four main categories that you track, which is society, knowledge, health, and environment. Are you guys, and maybe you can take two each, but just able to dive a little bit into what you were looking for in each of these categories, like particularly with ones that like society and knowledge, which seem a bit esoteric, I guess, health and environment, maybe it's a bit easier to understand, but the first two in particular, it's hard to kind of put a, a number on that. So yeah, so maybe I'll jump into society and, and knowledge. So society and knowledge are both more driven on the S of ESG. Um, society comes from jobs, taxes, societal infrastructure, societal stability, equality, and human rights. Knowledge comes from knowledge infrastructure, creating knowledge, distributing knowledge, the amount of, of human capital used for the products and services that the business is offering. Nils, I don't know if you want to dive into to health and environment. Um, if not, I'm happy to, to jump into it as well. Okay, so I'll jump into health. Um, so health is looking at physical disease, mental disease, nutrition, relationships, meaning and joy. So to give you guys um, a couple of, of examples within the health space, if you have a e-commerce business that's selling sunscreen, um, sunscreen allows you to be outdoors, in nature, etc. So that would go more into a meaning and joy. Um, also, if we're looking at the agritech businesses and farming, that would also um, be into nutrition. Then moving on to environment. So you have your GHG emissions, your non-GHG emissions, your scarce natural resources, your biodiversity and waste. So depending on what type of business or company the products and services are, this would develop their environmental footprint. So for a lot of the, the financial platforms that I mentioned earlier, um, their environmental footprint would be very, very small. Um, again, if we're talking about an e-commerce platform that focuses on cosmetics, their 
footprint would actually be um, much larger on the environmental side. And it's interesting because this report is clearly not just looking at, you know, how big your carbon footprint is, for example. It's trying to be a little bit more holistic in terms of its views and the proximity or at least relationship to the UN sustainability, sustainable development goals. Uh, so trying to cover a wider range than just saying the environment or carbon. Yeah, I think when we set out for this report, it was kind of to look at impact as a whole. So if we look at ESG, it's, in, it's incorporating everything into that, not just the environmental footprint. Um, I'd say as uh, this is kind of a phase one approach, so kind of creating a baseline for all of our portfolio and capturing all of the impact that each company is having holistically. And then phase two would be more of a deep dive into the carbon footprint that each company has and creating strategies around that. That's very interesting because obviously that would be a natural progression, that phase two of how do you decarbonize? How do you lower the impact of everything, especially from a negative sense uh, on the planet? Do you see that companies are being more attentive to this nowadays, uh, maybe in the last like three or four years? Definitely. Um, Companies are are looking at their carbon footprint and how they can create strategies to reduce it, whether that have to be some sort of modification in their current strategy or just looking at things a bit more longer term and putting goals in place for short and long term um, timeframes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think also I can just speak from the other end of the spectrum, right? So we work with a lot of corporates in the corporate venture building that we do, of course, right? And and on that end of the spectrum, it's become an increasingly hot topic, you know, driven primarily, I guess, you know, from two, two factors, two angles. One is like investor pressure from the top and then the other angles from consumer pressure from the bottom. Um, and then in other parts of the world, of course, you have more sort of, let's say, the horizontal pressure of like more regulation coming. And so, you know, companies need absolutely need to get ahead of the curve. But what is really encouraging to hear is also, you know, that this is happening on the sort of early stage startup side of the of, of the spectrum as well, right? Um, and there you have, you know, a lot of organizations and companies also working with, with early stage startups and, and the venture community trying to drive and instill action and, and, and best practices from, from an early, basically from an early stage where you have the opportunity to A, be more thoughtful around which suppliers you start to work with, B, how you design and set up your operations and your processes. Being able to do all of that from day one in terms of the choices you make when you're building a startup uh, as opposed to when you're a multi-billion dollar organization with global supply chains and it is way more costly perhaps to start putting in you know, measures to, to decarbonize your supply chain. So Niels, I mean, I'd like to talk about that a little bit more, especially from the corporate venture building side. These are corporates that are coming to you to kind of develop either departments or whole separate companies with the idea of being a little bit more sustainable or a little bit more planet positive. How does that then feed back into the parent company in terms of the changes and moves that they're making to decarbonize or to have a more positive impact? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, right? So I guess like one one good example to speak to with regards to sort of the question that you're asking is we, 
very recently um, built and launched a essentially a carbon accounting platform here in in, in Singapore, uh, and it's it's been publicly launched in public now together with with Olam in a business called Terrascope, right? And fundamentally, the question that they had been grappling with for a very long time, being very much ahead of the curve and very progressive in terms of you know for the last couple of years already calculating their carbon footprint across all of their supply chains and the whole business is a how do you do this in a way where you can get more accurate in terms of the data that you're capturing so that b you can get more confident in the actual number that you're reporting and therefore being able to then be more precise and concise about reduction and mitigation strategies that you that you're putting into place right um, and so together with Olam we built this this telescope business which is essentially a, a you know, like I mentioned, a carbon accounting platform that works with large corporates to help them calculate the carbon footprint across their scope one, two, and three. And to your question specifically, so, you know, Olam was very much customer number zero, effectively, if you want to call it that, for Terrascope, um, helping them, therefore, getting more accurate uh, emissions calculations and getting greater confidence in the actual score that they're uh, reporting. But now also having built Terrascope, having built upon that experience and having built upon that knowledge is able to then also go to other customers and provide the software as a service to, to other customers, other large corporates and enterprises who are also embarking on a similar journey. So what are you both hoping to see as a result of this report? What are the changes that you'd like to see or impact that this report would have? I guess the, the main pointer is that more and more companies actually do baselines so that they can create a strategy and understand what they're doing very well and also look at how they can improve and create strategies around that that baseline. Because I think without a baseline, you really don't know where you stand and you really can't manage something that you don't measure. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, I would just build on and add that I think it's incredibly encouraging to see the first of such a report in, in, in sort of in our part of the world, you know, specifically in Indonesia then, but sort of the, the broader Southeast Asia context. And I think what this will catalyze is other venture funds to to follow and also do do similar reporting of the you know broader ESG impact of their portfolio, driven by, I guess, like also investor pressure. I think increasingly more and more uh, sophisticated LPs will will request these types of reports from uh, from the from the GPs and and it's fantastic because it as Lauren mentioned I think it, it gives us the baseline it then uh, means that you know if you once you have a baseline uh, you can start to manage you know once you've measured what what is what exactly your starting point is so I just wanted to go back to something Niels that you mentioned and you know it's something that I often think about where you said there's investor pressure from the top there's public pressure from the bottom, and there's kind of this lateral pressure from the government. Well, my question is really, in your opinion, where do you think the responsibility for this change should lie? Is it expected that things will only change when consumers demand it? Does regulation have to change? Or is it only when investors start applying that pressure or companies really going to start acting? So where where's the responsibility in this trifecta here? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what I'm incredibly encouraged about is that there's a greater realization that this is all of our collective responsibility, right? And 
fantastic that there are certain forces moving first, you know, so like investor pressure or consumer pressure in certain industries, those are sort of the first forces moving. But ultimately, it's all about collective responsibility, right? And I think that realization uh, is is starting to really permeate through and everybody realizing, okay, well, you can't really do it by yourself. In certain instances, in certain industries, you do need government policy or regulation to help drive and stimulate that kind of change. Or in other other industries, you need consumers to start adopting and choosing for your product, if you know, uh, and, and demonstrating basically their pressure through their through through their purchasing power. Uh, or in other industries, you need investors to also then sort of be the first ones to move to drive uh, drive that change by where they put their investment dollars. But more and more, I think it's it is absolutely a collective responsibility, and it's, it's great to see that 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 is happening and that is taking place, and that that collective responsibility is starting to permeate through all these various sectors and various sort of parties uh, that you mentioned. And Lauren, your thoughts on this? I, I agree. I think it's kind of um, across all spaces. Looking at it from a VC fund perspective. We definitely are seeing the investment community asking more and more questions. Um, you're already seeing, I'm already seeing the movement from a general exclusion list to requiring ESG consideration and impact philosophies. And also at the same time, we are also trying to put our portfolio companies on the best footing possible prior to the inevitable regulations happening. So I think, um, it, again, as, as Nils mentioned, it's, it's coming from all directions. And I think that it will be a collective effort to get to where we all want to be. I think my personal issue with this whole space is when you look at something like fossil fuel subsidies, where you've got the companies making billions of dollars for their shareholders and hitting record profits. And you've got countries like Indonesia, for example, which heavily subsidize fossil fuels because there is a direct correlation between the price of petrol and how likely it is an incumbent politician is going to be reelected in most countries. So there is that there's a very strange dynamic there where even a a politician that might know what they want, want to do has no choice because they need to be in power in order to enact power. So therefore continues with the subsidies that are then only generating larger profit for the fossil fuel companies who then can use that power for lobbyists and all the other things that they do to maintain their control in the system. So there's a, there's a really weird dichotomy that I see between what is good for the collective human species and how people are choosing to enact that. And I, I know that's not, not a question in there, but it's just, you know, something that's like food for thought. Yeah, no, you're right. But I think the the thing I always come back to is that these things happen in, in sort of, they, they require multiple cycles and iterations, right? And so unfortunately, it's not just a matter of we all sort of switch and make a decision today. I think, as you mentioned, there are you know certain cycles of things happening. And so you need to go through a cycle to get to the next inflection point of a cycle to be able to enact the change or do the iteration. And then it requires another cycle. But the momentum is in the right direction, though. So that's, I think that's the positive thing, right? And that's sort of, that's the hopeful thing. And that's what we've got to build on. So building on momentum is sort of the, the thing that, that every startup founder and venture builder will always tell you, like, get behind it and drive that momentum. And so I think that's what we've got to do. It is what every startup founder lives and dies by, pure momentum. So where do you guys stand? And, and only because there's been so much in the media recently, and actually I think that's a good thing 
talking about companies greenwashing and how you've got the major oil companies telling you about how they're trying to be green. And when you dig a little deeper, you find that most of this is masquerading. The the best example I can give is of uh, one company that was selling a cardboard bottle with the idea that this is meant to be more sustainable. But if you cut the cardboard, it's just basically cardboard wrapped around a plastic bottle. You know, what's your opinion on that in terms of how companies are getting away with it and where we're seeing consumers act a bit smarter? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you my opinion. My opinion on that is I think you will always have those elements of society trying to shortchange something for the benefit of, for their own benefit or trying to, you know, free ride in a way that, that sort of benefits them exclusively and, and maybe, you know, leads to sort of short-term profits that they may make. You'll always find that. Regardless, that's, I think it's human nature, right? But when it comes to the broader general sort of topic around greenwashing, my perspective is always like you're able to have an impact and drive change when you have a seat at the table. And rather than sort of trying to stand on the sidelines, point fingers, I think that moral practices and things need to be surfaced and we need, we need to have transparent people who, who do the hard work of bringing transparency to, to these type of issues. But really to have an impact and drive change, you're able to do that when you have a seat at the table, right? And, um, and I think the examples of, you know, activist investor groups getting together, lob- lobbying at AGMs, getting themselves elected to, to corporate boards to then help drive change from the inside. I think those are powerful examples of how, how we need to think about this. You know, so once you come across these examples, rather, rather than thinking, okay, well, so A, transparency, great, bringing these, highlighting these things, bringing it to the surface, fantastic. But if you're really keen on, on having an impact and driving change, it's like, how do you get involved? How do you get a seat at the table? And how do you sort of influence from the inside is always my perspective on these things. Lauren, what are your thoughts? I know that you've, you've sort of seen this maybe a little bit more than, than most in your experience. Yeah, so I think that, um, it's a clear issue, but at the same time, it speaks to the growing importance of ESG. That said, from a startup perspective, it's usually the starting point of, of their journey. Um, so, you know, everything for a startup has a specific focus. They're very, very dialed into what their exact company is based off of. So ESG or their carbon footprint usually is kind of like a secondary focus so perhaps because of that and because they are uh, very much still in startup mode, their ESG journey is, is just starting. So whether they are focusing on reducing their plastic or being zero waste or reducing their carbon emissions on their logistics, as long as they're transparent, I, I don't necessarily think them being called out for greenwashing is, is, is the right thing. Um, they are starting their journey. They're being transparent. And um, as any other startup, they're kind of learning as they go. So there's really, there's really no, um, no clear uh, path to this. It's starting their journey. That said, I think for large companies or, or you know, multinational conglomerates, there's really no excuse because they do have the resources. And as Nils mentioned, getting a seat at the table to drive that change. I mean, I also think that, you know, the world that we live in, you cannot expect anybody to be 100% right on everything. And I think part of the problem that maybe the environmental space has had for so long is that it was really dominated by very extreme views. 
And those extreme views made it seem that if you didn't comply 100% with all of these views, then you were not part of the team, where I think there is definitely a space for people to say, hey, you know, I'm making changes or I'm trying to impact change in my own way in the area that I have power and control over versus trying to change every aspect of my life uh, to meet this requirement. And I think we're starting to see more and more people adopting kind of what works for them. And the same with companies. Companies are looking at, you know, what can we do? Okay, we might not be able to, if we're a logistics company, we might not be able to only use electric vehicles, but can we reduce our packaging or can we, you know, there, there are different ways that you can approach the problem considering that the problem is so large. Yeah, agreed. I, I think you're totally spot on with that. And I think a lot of it also goes back to, you know, what we talked about in the beginning is creating a baseline. Once you have that baseline, you can address those issues and see, you know, where you can move the needle the most. Like you mentioned on logistics and EV, I think every logistics company would, would, would love the opportunity to be able to kind of snap their fingers and switch on to EV, but it's just not possible, right? You can't, you can't implement something like that overnight. And you can't do that without significant infrastructure change, for example, from the government and other large corporates that have to get involved in creating the whole ecosystem to make that work. Exactly. And even more so when you start talking about electric vehicles, it's great. Where is the energy that that electricity is coming from? Where is that being generated? Because if that's being generated by coal or other fossil fuels, then that, yes, it helps a little bit, but there's also a much bigger problem as to where we're getting our energy entirely. So, you know, there is a much bigger systems systems play here. Yeah, no, you're right. And I guess it comes back to that earlier point of like the iterations and the cycles, right? So first we've got to electrify everything and then, you know, change the grid. We can't wait for the, for the grid to change before we start electrifying everything, right? Um, and so, uh, yeah, iterations and cycles is sort of how we'll get there. I want to thank both of you so much for being on the show. I really, uh, I really learned a lot, particularly about the report. I will leave a link to the report in the show notes so anybody else that wants to go and read it can click through there and, and check it out. But yeah, Niels, Lauren, thank you both so much for your time. Thanks, Al.